Welcome back to What's Your Line with Greta. Today, I have a longtime friend and key support person in my career that I would like you to meet. Dan O'Bruno is currently a brands manager for Progression Brands Group, including Dahoo Ski Boots, Movement Skis, Capriana Clothing, and Crazy. He is a longtime ski technician and biomechanical specialist of the foot. He has worked with some of the biggest names in skiing from Tanner Hall, Sarah Burke, C.R. Johnson, to Alex Ferreira, and everyone in between. And I was lucky to have met him in the beginning of my career. Dano, welcome to the show. Good morning, Greta. How are you? I'm doing great. I got to go skiing yesterday, so um, it started. The ski season is here. How about you? Yeah, I haven't been on snow yet, but I'm totally jonesing. And as we're talking, I'm watching some video of you skiing, which is getting me even more hyped for the winter. And I saw your little uh, segment on, on Instagram yesterday, and my son's out doing it, and some of the other athletes I work with are doing it. So I'm super pumped for the winter. It's going to be a great way to move on past everything that's happened in 2020, I think. Yeah, it's been it's been an interesting one, and I think it's going to still be interesting going into this season, too. I mean, we've known each other for so long. Um, I actually first met you back at my first X Games when the women's were having actually a demo tour, like a demo, like half pipe session. And I got to meet you at the Armada Skis house. Yep. Do you remember, do you remember that interaction? I do. I totally remember meeting you and your, your mom was there. And, um, you know, one thing I remember was looking in your eyes. And having actually not really seen you ski, I think we had some video of you for some reason, but I saw the look in your eye and kind of honestly said to myself, this girl's going to be something special and look how it turned out. <laughs> <laughs> I know I came from like a very um, like rigid Alpine Norwegian ski team career and I quit the ski racing program because I just knew there was something more for me beyond skiing around gates. And I knew that, like, I love to jump more than, like, um, uh, what's it called when you're, like, downhill skiing and you're trying to absorb, you know, the bump. I always wanted to shoot off the bump. So when I came to you um, at X Games, I was so surprised because at first I was like, oh, I thought I left all the ski technician stuff aside and I wasn't going to have that same support. It was going to be more of, like, a free-for-all. And um, I think that's when my mom pulled you aside and she's like, so you're going to take care of her, right? And I was 17 or – I was 15, 15, 16, I think. I think I was going to say, I thought you were 15 years old. Yeah, I think I was 15. Yeah. So that's funny you bring that up because I think the way I took it initially from your mom was that like, oh, you're, you're going to take care of her equipment and her boots and all this stuff. But then there again, there was a look in her eye like you're going to take care of my baby, right? Like, you know, I don't and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you and your mom really knew quite what you were getting to. I mean, obviously you're at the X games and, um, you know, that's our super bowl, right. For free ride skiing, freestyle mm -hmm. skiing and yep. all of that. So you're, you're definitely caught up in the moment. There's a vibe there. There's, there's something in the air there, but that look that your mom gave me was similar to the look that Darla May Tana Hall's mom had, had given me too. Like, you're the guy you're kind of one of those guys that's going to take care of my my child and that um 
that meant a lot to me. And I took that very seriously, as you well know, now that both you and I are parents. So, mm-hmm. yeah, um, like thinking back to that, too, like our moms must have been, you know, we played soccer, we played traditional sports, ski racing, and there was always like a structure. There was always a coach or, you know, somebody watching the children. But then we decided we wanted to go do this thing that wasn't quite established yet, uh, twin tip free skiing. And then, um, yeah, X Games really was a big party back then. It wasn't like this, like, um, there were no parents. Like, my mom bringing me over from Norway was really the only one. And Darla, like, were the only parents really around. But they weren't, you know, hanging out with the skiers and watching the movies and stuff. So I don't think they really understood what we were, like, striving for. But they knew we loved to ski. Yeah, I think I agree at that time. In some respect, I don't think we even knew what tomorrow was going to bring. You know, I I think we were in the moment. But I think you and I or whatever athlete it was took it incredibly serious. We we trained to the best of our abilities at the time. And, you know, you guys did. And my job was, you know, taking care of equipment and all of that. And I, I think. I think deep down we knew we were on to something and we knew that we had to perform to the best of our abilities in order to grow the sport. And you came from a, a mogul free skiing background, right? So you were a mogul skier and then you got into like ski tuning and uh, ski technician stuff. Is that right? Well, no, actually I wasn't a, a mogul ski. I mean, honestly, in the ski industry, my, my background originally was I used to work in a ski shop in Washington DC when I was 16 years old and I grew up ski racing but I moved out to Colorado and became a ski patrolman and a backcountry guide for many many years and that was my my kind of initial um christening into the business I guess you'd say and during that time I always had relationships with ski companies or goggle companies or whatever it is so I was always very involved in the product development phase even as a young racer I was I guess I was that kid that would always go up to the rep or whatever and say hey you need to change this or what can we change this or so I've always been very techie you would say (laughs) and and then how did you how were you how did you get connected to like rising on armada early on like how did you know this was like a cool thing like this could be something well my last two years of kind of as I would say quote unquote quote skiing professionally I was still patrolling and back in the day we had the big mountain tour you know we had free skiing in in that realm there wasn't freestyle skiing where there was a half pipe and slope style and all that it was you know big mountain skiing so I was still competing and um I skied for Rosignol for a couple of years and then I was offered a position with them to kind of join um the race department and promotions in the western U.S. so I came to Rosignol and started working in in that arena and one of my biggest jobs was taking care of the ex World Cup ski racers that were under contract still with Rosignol at that time. And that was a blessing. I mean, I worked with af- athletes like Alberta Tomba and Thomas von Grunigan and uh, Tamara McKenney. And, you know, I traveled with those guys. By default, I had to take care of all their equipment. And that got me even more into ski tuning and working with ski boots. And that kind of was the process. And then to get to Armada, obviously, the next step when, you know, we decided to to start this brand called Armada that everybody said we would fail. Um, that was kind of the start of that whole side of things. And obviously, when I was at Rosignol was when I met Tanner and 
and some of the other athletes and obviously especially Tanner because I've spent so much time with T up on the hill. Before we talk about Tanner a little more, um, go back to Alberta Tomba. I had no idea you worked with him. What was so after his after he was done seen on the World Cup tour? What did he do? That's when you were working with him. Yeah, so at Rosignol, we had a relationship with Lexus Automobiles, and we traveled around. Uh, usually early season, uh, we would spend time on the hill, like late November, December, January, and into February with uh, Alberta doing what was called the Tomba Tour, and we would travel all around the country and promote Rosignol promote skiing and promote Lexus vehicles and um you know to spend time with an athlete like that was uh that was amazing for me um and I always looked up to Tomba as a skier I mean the guy could ski I'll never forget going we were in Taos in Taos in New Mexico and it just dumped snow and Tomba wanted to go skiing the event got canceled and I knew a couple patrolmen there and we went up to the top and walked into PHQ by the peak over there and a couple of guys noticed Tomba and I, they rolled their eyes like, Oh God, this guy wants to go skiing. So anyway, we went up to the top of this peak and they let Tomba ski and go first. And I'm sure that those guys figured, Oh, all he could do was race. And all it was, was just a cloud of cold smoke flying everywhere. And I looked over at the three other patrolmen that were with us and their mouths were just hanging out. They couldn't believe it. <laughs> Here's Alberta Tomba just, and he had all this kind of his race stuff on it. It was a classic, classic moment. <laughs> wow. I, I, I didn't know that. I guess I probably didn't see it because I was, a, you know, a little girl and there wasn't, you know, a little girl not seeing the, the video of Tomba um, in Europe skiing around. But that's so cool how he was able to, like, continue his career and, like, create this tour, too, around his name. And then he had you as a support system, too. That's, that's super interesting. And it's kind of cool how um, I could kind of learn from it as well, like, how can you continue to make your name relevant in skiing and still be a part of the industry in some way? Do you have any, is he still around? What is, did he? Um, he's still around. I, I haven't actually had any conversations with him in a long time. And we bumped into each other at a, at the world champ, or maybe it was at Salt Lake Olympics or somewhere. I had a couple of conversations with his old kind of technician, just dealing with, with bindings at one point in time when look slash Rosignol were, I don't know if you remember when they kind of phased out the turntable for a year um, and Tanner was still on the binding. The turntable meaning the, the laying pivot, right? The the binding, is that what you're talking yeah, about? The, the yeah, the look Rosignol pivot, yeah. Oh, right, yes. Um, mm -hmm. That, you know, they phased that out for a little bit. But anyway, um, other than that, I, I don't really know. I've lost contact with him. I, I look forward to bumping back into him again because we did – I did spend, you know, quite a bit of time with him and we had a lot of fun together and, um, you know, just being around athletes at your level, his level, it's, you know, I enjoy working with you guys. So. And thinking about it, I think I actually had an Alberta Tomba like poster in my room. And then I just read Axel Lundsvindal, the uh, Norwegian ski racers book. And he mentions him quite a bit in the book and just explained how he's like a a real like ladies man and a party guy, just like a very charismatic. And it would, it, I'd just it'd be amazing to meet him. I, I'm sure he's still the same way. Right. Well, yeah. All those stories yeah. you hear about Tomba's life outside of being in his boots and clicked in his bindings are absolutely true. <laughs> I, I lived it. Um, he got me into trouble quite often with 
the big bosses at Rossignol, but I'll tell you one thing, he always had my back. He always stepped in and said, it's not Dano, that was me, whether we were late for a press conference or whatever it might be, that guy always had my back. And to go on the hill and ski with him was something I'll never forget. And then um, transferring over to Tanner Hall, you know, the most decorated free skier, movies, X Games medals, everything in the world. How, how did that jump go? When did you meet Tanner? So I met Tanner, obviously, at that time at Rossignol when I was tasked to uh, coordinate all the free ride skiing in North America for Rossignol. I That's when I first met Tanner. Um, and were you like kind of given him like as a role, like, hey, okay, you work for Risenol. Um, make sure you take care of this kid. Is it like a athlete manager? What was like kind of the 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 memo saying, okay, Dana, watch out for this guy? Yeah, I mean it you know, it was where it was time where we were ready to start building a, a team. Um yep. and so he in, in free skiing, like a first twin he was the first twin tip um free skier sponsored by Rosinal, right? Yeah, he was really kind of our first guy over here in North America. Um, David David uh, Bouvier. Um, oh, right. Yep. Remember him, probably. So he had some cats over in Europe. And, you know, we were building, obviously, a North American team and then kind of a global team. And so we had athletes here in the U.S. and we had athletes up in Canada that we were looking at. And, you know, Tanner had been on the radar from mogul skiing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we knew that he was uh, wanted to leave mogul skiing and get into freestyle or into free ride. Well, however we want to call it now. <laughs> right. Yeah. Cause it's, yeah. Cause now, I mean, thinking back, like now there's national teams, there's pretty much every single ski sponsor has a twin tip. Every ski manufacturer has a twin tip now. And uh, it's in the Olympics, ski, uh, slope style, half pipe. I think Big Air is coming up. I don't know if Ski Big Air isn't yet, but I think it's going to be coming to Beijing, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I think so. What, um, a tra- what a transformation. I mean, from the beginning, like even when, I'm sure when you met Tanner, but then when you met me, it was very, you know, very tight. You know, the, 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 the brands had a lot to say, you know, like if you were sponsored by Oakley or Armada or Dina Star or Solomon, that was kind of like your team, right? And then everyone from around the world would come to X Games or the U S free skiing open, and then you would compete under basically your brand, right? Kind of. Correct. I, I mean, yeah. you probably remember back, back in the day, we, we used to almost, you know, you guys were competing and then us as team managers or whatever you want to call us, we almost competed on who could rent and have the dopest house, who could have the biggest house and all, all of that stuff. And, you know, those times were great. Budgets were somewhat unlimited. And I think you remember, we used to go pretty crazy with those homes. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it was, it was unreal. Like I really felt like I stepped into like a, like a concert or like a rock video, you know, it was like, oh, this is the, this is my sport. Of course I want to pick this. Why wouldn't you just have fun and you get a dance and party and it's, it's great. I, I totally agree. But like, I guess so that all the companies did have money, but how did, how did Dana, how did you know this was going somewhere? I mean, you worked with like the top skier in the world, Alberta Tumba. You were on, um, you were working for like the freestyle world cup. You were working for racing. How did you like mentally make the switch from like uh, tip, um, traditional freestyle to 
this new free skiing sport? Like how did, what was it something in your heart that just said, this is going to be something? I, I think it's the people, um, you know, back, back to Tanner. Um, I'll never forget seeing, cause I'm a technician. I'm a, I'm a foot guy. I'm an athlete myself, et cetera. But I always remember seeing Tanner standing there in his ski boots and from far away in my mind, I'm like, wow, I've never like that guy can stand in ski boots. Like he looks so natural. And, and I, I don't know, I guess my point is like, it, it's about the people. And as soon as I met Tanner, I knew that there was something special about him as, as a person. And, you know, you could get in the controversy of, of tea and all of that stuff, but as a person, as an athlete, as somebody who's passionate about skiing, that, that was what made me kind of say like, wow, everybody I've met in this, this sport that's just starting. I mean, what at that time, if there were, if there were 20 players in the world, all of them had that passion to ski and you could tell that they wanted to kind of make something special not having any idea but truly believing in that they could ski backwards where 99.9 percent of everybody on the planet was skiing forward um that they could do all of these things that was when i knew that something big was going to happen and i remember at that time i had my french boss here in the states I remember one day coming back from the X Games from Mount Snow or going to Mount Snow. And I went in the office to get some equipment and get the van to go up and meet the boys and stuff. And, um, and this yeah, was during, this was one of the first X Games, right? At Mount Snow. The one of the first, yeah. I know there was a, a summer ski big air, but then this was like the first like winter one, right? Well, we, well, there was like Big Bear in California where we had modified shovel racing and all of that, but we're not going to go there. <laughs> but we, we were in Crested Butte first, and then and then from Crested Butte we went we went to Mount Snow and and Mount Snow yeah was really where let's call it freestyle skiing I guess really debuted like at Crested Butte there was um, you know ski blades the little figgles or whatever you call them we had that yep. event we had ski across but anyway that first year at Mount Snow I walked in the office and my boss said what are you doing here and I said well I'm here for the X Games and you know. In, in only the way the French can can do it, he was like, "Well, it will never amount to anything." And you know, he, here or, we are today. Yeah, typical typical French. It's not possible. It's not possible. That, exactly. That was the <laughs> yeah. exact word. It, it is not possible. And then, I think that was the X Games where we we doubled up in big air at, at Rosignol, and you know, it's really the first time I would say the world saw saw Tanner and saw the sport and. I remember like at podium that there probably was, I, I don't know if I would say there was 3000 people in front of the podium and we actually threw Rosignol skis out into the crowd. And I remember Tanner having the OTG or o, what was it over the top OTTs that Oakley made the over the top sunglasses that the runners were using in the Olympics that next summer. Yes. The kind of like alien looking sunglasses. Yep. Yeah. And I, I remember going through that. And then going home and getting on the phone and like talking to George Cooperthwaite at the time at Rosenau, who oversaw the whole freestyle free ride program. Um, and just me going, guys, I don't know what's going on here, but this is like, this is going to be huge. It's just going to be huge. And just the way 
kids and people were so attracted to Tanner was uh, it was it was something special. I mean, it really was. Mm-hmm. I, I, I totally agree. It caught my eye and I was like, OK, you know, I could have switched to snowboarding, but there I was I'm a skier. And then I saw this happen. I'm like, this is what I'm going to do. This is all I want to do. In, in your opinion, where is skiing today compared to that feeling? Um, that's a great question. I, I think it's, I think it's still blowing up. I, I really believe that. Um, and you know, I still, I still work with Tanner and the amount of people that come up to me and say, you know, I can't believe he's still doing the things that he's doing. And I think that there's still athletes like you in the sport of freestyle skiing that shows that. You can be a competitor, but at the end of the day, it's about the passion of sliding on snow. And that's why you wake up every day and, and you go to the hill and you ski. And I tell this story a lot. Maybe you get on a chairlift with somebody you have nothing in common with. Maybe they know you. Maybe they don't know you at, a, at that professional level. And then the next thing you know, you, you take a 12-minute ride up a chairlift. You get off and you go take a run with somebody and you take another run. And all of a sudden, that relationship builds. And I still think that that's very prevalent in skiing today. Yeah, we're an Olympic sport, and that obviously kind of changes things a little bit. But at the heart, I still think the sport is really, really strong, and it's going to continue to grow. And I think 2020 shows it. You know, I mean, we haven't had that many mountains open in the lower 48, but I heard some crazy number with. Vale Resorts and their reservation thing. Like at one point, there were 184,000 people in the queue. Like skiers, skiers want to ski no matter what. And COVID's not going to stop us. Snow's not going to stop us. You know, we're going to figure out a way to to ski. And that, to me, makes me think that the sport's alive and well. Oh, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, and then currently now, you're working for a bunch of different brands, uh, specifically Dahu Ski Boots, and we'll get into this in a little bit, but just talking about the evolution of ski equipment over the years from the first thing that I saw when I was a little girl was shape skis, right? Parabolics. That was like the first um, new type of technology in skiing. And then it went to the twin tip. So you could go ski backwards or take off jumps, you know, backwards, whatever it was. And then I think it was reverse camber skis that Shane McConkie invented with the pontoon from K2 skis. What's, what's next? What's like the next thing, you know, what's the next technology, um, and skiing well i mean honestly i'm i'm blessed to have linked up with progression brands and the group there because i honestly believe that our boot is maybe the future for skiing and how we're able to introduce comfort and 100 percent performance with a ski boot and you know that I've just recently left working kind of directly with the consumer, um, the ski shop I used to work at, you know, we had 3d imaging. We're really the shop, at least in North America that brought 3d imaging to the ski consumer for the first time on a large, large scale, um, where we would scan every single foot. I mean, over the eight years that I was there, the thousands of thousands of feet that I would scan, and really, really look at very closely and, you know, spend sometimes two or three hours 
fabricating the plastic boot to make it fit the anatomy of the person and all of these crazy things, you know, we now have a boot that like any other ski boot, it has to fit your foot, right? Um, that you can put on your foot and in 20 minutes, walk out the ski shop and have a 100% comfortable ski boot that skis amazing. And it's such a different concept that it's really cool for me to go out and out into the field and, you know, go into a store that has one of these old time boot fitters, which I have the utmost respect for those guys. Cause that, that's what I've done for so long. But, and then you show it to them and right away they're like, Oh, it's never going to work. And I mean, that's crazy, right? Like I mean, we don't play tennis with wooden tennis rackets anymore. Theoretically we have, you know, planes that ships that go up into space and come back and, all these crazy things and you look at the ski industry from a boot standpoint and it really hasn't changed in so long yet skis skis have and i mean eventually something's got to give right okay i think this is a great time to um recognize this episode's sponsor my first sponsor super exciting stuff for me and the podcast what's your line with greta dahu ski boots Sahu's ambitious and innovative approach to ski boot design reimagines the alpine experience by solving our industry's greatest challenge, creating a performance product that is comfortable. Dahu is proud to deliver a product line that empowers all skiers to embrace every moment on any mountain. Persuasion Swiss engineering combined with Italian craftsmanship and design deliver a transformative experience for its consumers. It's more than just attention to detail. It's a commitment to deliver uncompromising comfort and performance. E-Course Shell, the evolution of the ski boot shell, precision engineered to focus support and flex where it's needed, while strategically eliminating material from the foot's most sensitive areas. The 100% Grillamid shell delivers maximum power transfer at an optimal weight. Cambian boot, in organic contrast to the shell's exacting technicality, the Cambian boot embodies an appreciation for the finer things in life. Warm, weatherproof, and fit to the unique contours of your feet. It excels as both a performance liner and a standalone piece of footwear. In the mountains, as in life, success relies upon adaptation. It's here that the human imagination discards the rigid and inflexible, reaching instead for the transformative. From the beginning, Dahu has imagined new ways of experiencing the world's alpine majesty through a synthesis of the technical ski shell and a standalone winter boot. For every moment, on any mountain, Dahu ski boots. Dano, I think that kind of just like sums it up. It's this boot that you can wear around the village or wherever you want to go, and then you just put it into a shell, and that's skiing. And it's like you don't have to be uncomfy. You don't have to walk weird anymore. No one's going to make fun of you. Is is that a great um, – I love this ad. It just like sums up the boot entirely. Yeah, thanks. I mean, you know, Greta, thanks so much for the opportunity. Um, to kind of introduce, you know, our boot at, at this level. Um, it is an unbelievably unique product. Um, the thing that 
attracted me to the boot so much is once I got on the hill and skied on it, I was blown away by how well it skied and also how comfortable it was. I mean, I'm a foot guy and and I struggle in my ski boots. I mean, usually it's a couple of few hours for me to build my boot and then I got to go up and ski and test and do this and do that. I literally put the Dahu on and just went skiing and, and I didn't, I didn't miss a beat the first time I ever really got to test it as we were developing the boot. It snowed about six, eight inches in bail. And I went up with two friends of mine. One of them was a ex buddy of mine I patrolled with. And he was like one of those guys, like if you miss a turn, he's on you right away. Like what's wrong with you, you know, thinking about right. something else or just one of those cats. And we, we took like eight runs and got back in the gondola in bail. And I rolled my pant leg up to make an adjustment. And those guys, their jaws just dropped because they could tell I was on something completely unique and completely different um and you know i i get to work with athletes like you but on my day-to-day business i was working with the consumer and a lot of people say well why do you do that like you're so lucky to work with the best athletes and it must be great traveling all over the place why are you working with some of them would say why are you with me like i don't get it and i just i knew that on a day-to-day basis, we lose skiers to our sport because their feet hurt. And um, that bothered me. And as I travel around and do clinics with boots or insoles or boot fitting, that's my focus. Like, guys, we can't lose people to skiing because their feet hurt. Like, it's less than 1% that that should happen to you. There's just a certain anatomy, biomechanical thing that some people just, it doesn't work to go into a ski boot. So, um, and I think Dahu just, just opens up it just opens it up so wide for people who have struggled in ski boots and you know what the timing's perfect for us because you know right now we're supposed to not be with each other for more than 15 minutes and we have a product that once um, a boot technician in a store kind of asks those basic questions you can pull a dahu out you can put it on your foot it's comfortable learn how to buckle it up and and you can go skiing in it like right away and so that's kind of a a blessing within itself and basically what we did is we took a a three-piece boot similar to say a dalbello or a full tilt um and we redesigned the three-piece boot right away we we cut some areas out on the inside or medial side of the foot and the lateral side of the foot um where there are problem areas so right away we started making the boot lighter and then we did the same thing with the cuff like where can we take some materials out of the cuff? Because in a ski boot, you need three components. You have to have a stiff sole. You have to have a stiff spine, so back of the boot. And you have to have two stiff lateral bands so that you can put the ski on edge on the inside edge and the outside edge. And then what we did is we took modern material called Gorilla Vid, which some people might be familiar with. But most major boot manufacturers have a boot that's made out of Gorilla Mid or PBEX or some kind of lightweight materials. So we added that to to the boot. Then we figured out a way to um, open the boot up, not only from the front, the tongue with a three-piece boot. And then we figured out a way and engineered a way to release the spine of the boot to open it up so that you had a way to enter and exit the boot with the Cambium boot. That's really, really kind of a crazy thing if you've never seen it. Obviously, our viewers or our listeners can go to go to dahu.com and, and check it out. Um, but the really unique part, too, of the boot is this Cambium boot that we've developed. And it, it truly is a outdoor winter boot that you could 
I had a day one day where I, it snowed a few inches and I shoveled my driveway really quickly with my, with my Cambian boot on. I jumped in my truck. I drove to the ski hill and I slipped on my shells and went skiing. And I, I ski just like I would if I was in a regular boot. So, um, you know, Primaloft insulation, we have Reco on there for people that ski in the back country. Um, it's incredibly comfortable uh italian leather it's all stitched in montebaluma italy where all ski boots are made um so um yeah i think think we're gonna yeah i think we're gonna disrupt the the ski boot business and the ski industry quite a bit 100 percent, and i have no doubt that you have the foresight and especially the ski industry just being able to see things and like kind of again finding a problem people didn't like it into their ski boots how do we fix this um Going back to you, Dano, you first got involved with the sport and you were actually at the first U.S. free skiing open, right? I was. And there this is the same time that Solomon, um, they launched their 1080 ski with J.P. Eau Claire, right? Correct. Yeah, J.P. and Kusan. Yeah, and Kusan. Exactly. That's I, I remember seeing that and seeing that ski all the way in Norway in the videos. I was like, how do I get that? None of my ski shops had it. I still never got a pair of 1080s because... Um, I remember you did. I had the, I had the June Po Endos. This this kid from Japan. I forget his name exactly, but he that's the ski I had. The ten. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. Um, what was that like too? I mean, same thing of that vibe of just seeing this change in the ski industry, and then suddenly, like all these skis are getting sold, and they have you can go backwards on them. Like, what was that well, like? Yeah, I mean, from a manufacturing standpoint, at Rosenthal, we we had a ski at that time called. Ross E. Knoll, <laughs> if you can kind of follow me there. We actually yeah. had a little, what's that? Oh, I was just saying, my actually first twin tip was a Ross E. Knoll. It had like the, the gangster, um, like. The character. The character, exactly. That was my first twin tip. It wasn't quite like a, we called it mini ski or a mini ski in Norway. Cause you know, like it wasn't a snowblade. It was a twin tip. And that was my first one. And I just remember being just blown away. Yeah. So. So Solomon had the 1080. Uh, we had this Rossi Knoll. We we saw what was happening, or at least we thought we knew what was happening. Then we get to the U.S. Open, and uh, I just remember getting on the phone right away and going, "Hey, something something's happening here." And excuse me, you know we all track sales and all of that, and and the 1080 just blew up. So at Rosenthal, we reacted very quickly developed some product and, uh, you know, went out and started looking for athletes. And that, that first year with U.S. Open in Vail and Freeze Magazine back in the day for some of our older listeners probably remember Freeze and what that magazine did for the sport. And, um, and people loved it. I, I mean, no, I, I'm sure most, most of the people that watched the event that weren't even aware of freestyle skiing were completely blown away by what the athletes were able to do on on skis. The least bit, even seeing an athlete ski switch on going backwards on a ski, they had never seen that before, and it it attracted a lot of attention very quickly in Vail. And the word spread like by the hour that something you got to go to Gold Peak and see what's going on. Like you've never seen skiers ski like this before. Mm-hmm. And what do you think made it? made Solomon the 1080 like be as big as it was because because there was other ski companies with twin tips but theirs really catapulted it what was was it JP and JF like the Canadian Air Force like behind it just having that team or I think I think so I think it Mm -hmm. 
like we kind of talked a little bit before, I think it's, it's always based around the athlete. In my opinion, it's those guys and gals that attract you to the sport. And if you're younger and you see people doing those kinds of things that gets your juices flowing and that's what gets you, that's what gets you into the sport. And I think that's probably at the core, what led to freestyle skiing or free ride skiing going into the Olympics. Yep. And then, um, going back again, when we first met, you were a ski technician and you were actually the guy that would get my skis, not just ready. Like you would have my skis for like months, you know, before I even got them, before I even skied on them, just getting them ready, putting your Dano special sauce on them, whatever you had to do. I still don't really know what you did to them, but you did amazing stuff to them. Um, the, the role of the ski technician. So early on in free skiing, there weren't many people that had a ski tech, especially at X Games. I mean, we had a couple people, you know, from Swix or like, you know, waxing skis here and there, but no one that really took it to like a really professional level where you would bring multiple skis up to the top of the half pipe. And, you know, if it snowed, there was never a worry face. And, you know, we weren't worried. We're like, oh, perfect. We can go even bigger because we know how to get through really deep snow. This is fine. Uh, what I guess I, my question is, what was it like being the only one up there, the only ski tech, like at the in the beginning? Well, I mean, I took my job very seriously, and I never wanted to put myself in a position to lose my job because something happened with your guys's equipment because I wasn't prepared, and I learned that at at Rosignol because I had a VP that would always say second place is the first loser. <laughs> so right. that that was heavy i mean to me like well i'd never even heard anything like that before like second place that's pretty solid right. um so you know my day-to-day life at that time i took that very very seriously um and i used to have to fight sometimes to get how many skis i wanted for you guys especially in in pipe and and park because i wanted to make sure that you guys had a quiver quote unquote a quiver of skis that were prepared slightly differently so that if the weather changed and yeah i brought that idea and those concepts and the technique and the knowledge from from the race department from racing and working at that end in into free ride and at first i i was the only technician i mean other guys had quote unquote team managers that would rub a little wax on or do this and do that but um initially at Rosignol my job was to make sure that we we won and we took it very very seriously I mean you know the athletes are getting paid good money we're developing product um on a day-to-day basis and we knew that we could sell more skis by having success on the podium um so yeah I I mean lots and lots and lots of hours on making sure that you guys were prepared and at the end of the day, when we're at competitions, I just wanted you guys to eat, sleep, and ski and let me worry about everything else. And I would imagine some of the gals probably were looking at you, wondering, you know, why why is it like that for Greta and not for me? And then slowly, the other companies started to catch on and, and what have you, especially like with Tanner and when Tanner and Simon were battling, you know, I, I know that I would see Simon look over sometimes and just shake his head because the weather was changing. And instead of his technician scrambling, I would just walk over and 
grab a slightly different setup on the ski and Tanner would just keep going. <laughs> yep. I, I definitely think I had the upper hand and, you know, coming, like going up to the half pipe, you know, on finals day and getting there for practice. And then you were there and I knew you had everything under control. I don't even remember once my ski ever popping off or even getting injured working with you, Dano. And I won two gold medals with you at X Games for half pipe, the first ever woman to win um, the first one and then the second too, back to back. Unreal. And I, I think it's because I came from a ski racing background where the other um, women came, I believe, from like moguls, freestyle, upright aerials. And it like ski tuning, I feel like in those disciplines weren't as important as in ski racing. Like in ski racing, you had to know how to, you know, tune your edges. You, you had to learn how to like pack your skis up, put them away, travel, this kind of thing. So when I switched from ski racing to free skiing, I just took those same principles. Like, okay, I'm just going to do the same thing that I do to my ski racing skis, but I'm going to do it to my free skiing skis, right? Sure, I'm going to, you know, detune the edges for um, slope style, but for pipe, you know, I got to have my edges, you know, we got to have this, this all set up. And I think that's why you and I really clicked was like, you just, you just got me so well. And I never, I was never worried once. I never was like, oh my goodness, is my skis there? I, not once. All I thought about was get to the half pipe. What are you going to do? Turn your music on, do your, your tricks, like just figure it out. And I think that's such a, an important thing is having someone like that, a ski technician and a coach for an athlete. And uh, I believe you've been able to see some really, really cool things. A lot of athletes do a lot of cool um, tricks and, you know, just, just mind blowing things um, because of what you were able to instill confidence in us. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, I, you hit yeah. the nail on, on the head. I mean, that was, that was my job. That was of the utmost importance, whether it was you or 10 or any of the athletes I work with, even with the athletes I work now, some of them, I'm just doing their boot work and doing their everyday insoles and stuff. And I, yeah, that's just how I, I, I operate. I, I don't want you guys to have to worry. Is my binding screw tight or have I waxed right or what, whatever the case might be. And, um, at that level, I, I just can't wrap my head around not being prepared. And, you know, right. when I look at, when I would look like with my son, when, when Liam was competing in super pipe and you'd go and you'd see all these things happening and these young kids just struggling to just make it halfway down the pipe or make it to the second jump or the second rail on the contest. And they have coaches and all these people and all this stuff is happening when, in my opinion, at, at the very basic level, if you're not set up in the boot properly, you're not in your athletic biomechanical correct stance, your skis not tuned for the conditions and all of these things and everything else is irrelevant because you're already behind. It'd be like a race car driver getting into his car and the engineer not doing his job, making sure that the engine's right and the tires like to me, it's the same thing. And I, I can't wrap my head around being at that level or really any competition level of not having your equipment be prepared. And and back to like the parenting too, like the tricks that everyone's doing are they're kind of crazy you know everyone's jumping like 20 feet out of the pipe they're flipping they're spinning they're trying things people have never done before and they can't really not have the equipment work the equipment has to work because the athlete already has to do so much right it, ju it just has to work it it does and i think the safety aspect of it is so critical i mean when when uh when we were at x games 
and you might not even know this, but you know, I would have the garage and I'd always have to have a garage that I could make sure I could lock up and nobody could get in there. The last thing I would do every night before I went to bed, whether it was 11 o'clock at night or 3 a.m. in the morning, is I would take your boots and all my athletes' boots, put them in the bindings, make sure everything was okay. Then I would lock the door. I'd wake up in the morning, grab a cup of coffee, walk in, and the first thing I would do is put all of your boots into every single binding that you could potentially ride on and make sure that nobody got into the garage and booby-trapped you. Now, that would never, God forbid, I hope, ever happen in, in skiing, especially not in our sport. But that's how that's how I, I was. You know, that's how I, I operate. That's kind of a crazy thing. And I don't know that I've told that story to too many people, but, you know, like that's how far I took it. And I hope that it helped to lead to, you know, every athlete that I've worked with, I hope it's helped to lead to their success. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I think every parent, every skier should know, you know, how to adjust their din setting, you know, how does the something not feel right? You know, I think it's super important that people don't just realize this is just, you know, that just doesn't come out of the box. Like you have to understand how the equipment works and then you can take it to the next level. Otherwise you can get seriously hurt. You can blow your knee, you can hurt your head. I mean, there's backs, there's so many um, things that could go wrong. So it's important to understand that everything is, you know, copacetic and running right before. It is. Wow. That, that, that's, you're right. And you, the, the younger viewers out there that are listening, like learn, learn how to tune your skis, learn about, learn about your feet and how it affects your body and learn about ski boots and all that stuff. Because if your real goal is, is to be the next Greta or the next Tanner or the next Taylor Seaton or whoever it is, the more you know about your body and your equipment, when you get to that point and you have the blessing to start to work with a technician, your ability to communicate to that person what is wrong and what is right is going to decide what happens tomorrow in the competition or what happens tomorrow in that day of training when you're trying to learn a new trick or whatever. Um, it will exponentially move your career upwards if you become that kind of techie guy. And I work with some athletes that weren't like that initially. And part of taking care of their equipment is also teaching them how to communicate back to me so I, I can make, you know, it's one thing of an athlete, oh, the ski's just not skiing well. Well, okay, what, why? You got to be able to tell me. And sometimes at first they can't, but over a period of time they learn. And then, then things start to move much more rapidly, especially like now it's easier for me than to go back to the manufacturer that they ski for and start making suggestions on changes that we could possibly make. Right. Oh yeah. I, I would totally agree. I think every kid that's going to compete in skiing needs to know how to tune their skis. I mean, it's just like, if you're going to go to the, any type of next level, if you're going to compete against someone, you need to understand how your skis work and you need to know how to take care of your equipment. I think that's just like one oh one and, I, I hope also the coaches that are listening that you start teaching your kids how to do it. Like you, you don't do it. You, you all go together after practice into the garage, get your um, tuning box out, get your irons out and everyone tunes their own skis. That's like the only way to learn. I feel like that's part of the um, ski coaching process is you got to teach them how to be, you know, good people, 
how to actually do the sport, but then also how to take care of your equipment because skiing is an equipment sport. We can't do it without it. Yeah. It is <laughs> Bottom line. For sure. yeah. And, and, you know, um, I haven't worked kind of with an academy in a few years now, but at the end you, you did see that, you know, happening quite a bit. Actually you, you'd see the academies, they would all kind of have their little wax rooms or figure ways out to, to take care of their equipment. But, um, well, because when know, I was growing up, it was it was all in Norway. When I moved to Norway, it was all the parents. The parents were waxing all the other my <laughs> and my parents didn't know how to do it. And they're like, "Sorry, Greta, we don't know how." And I'm like, "Oh my gosh, I have to learn myself." But that, like, you know, and was that was a good thing because then I had to figure it out. And that's probably why one of the reasons why I was successful is I had to figure it out at a young age. Yeah, I mean that's a funny story because I, I remember like first X Games where. Bill Casabon was there, B-Dog and his dad. And all of a sudden, in a very short period of time, I, you know, I had to build this relationship really quickly with, with his father because his father always took care of his equipment. And, um, you know, something went wrong with B-Dog's bindings. And I started doing my thing. And his dad walked up to say, you know, do you really know what you're doing? And, <laughs> oh, you my know, goodness. Just yeah. I, and he, Toby and he, Dawson. I tuned Toby. Yeah. I worked with Toby for his, you know, his the back end of his career. Uh, you know, won the the medal at in Italy at the Olympics with Toby and all that. And you know, it was it was Toby's dad that always tuned his equipment. And I remember I remember that meeting with with his dad on that same thing. Like with Heidi Closure, where Mike used to always tune Heidi skis, and then this guy comes in and just kind of funny stuff. But uh, yeah, I, you got Yeah, you got to take stuff. it. Yep. And I, I'll, Phil Casabone, I think he used to be a ski racer before everything now. So that's, I think, why his dad probably was such a big support for him. But yeah, take care of your stuff. Um, one, I just have to, we just have to talk about CR for a minute. CR Johnson, what an incredible skier friend. Um, I looked up to him so much in his ski movie video parts. And then, you know, everything he did competition wise, really for me, it was like the movie parts, just spinning both ways, being in the backcountry. And we lost CR through a, um, like a, another a brain injury. And it just, I, I don't know even how to even ask this question, but I just want to talk about CR a little bit. Like what, when, how did he affect your life, Dano? Um, well, in Tanner's latest movie, you know, he talks oh. about not like, he's not here to, you know, he's not here to, to die. We have, we have, a lot of friends that we've lost to the sport as you know, unfortunately. Right. Um, mm -hmm. but like, I think we, in our lives, we all meet people who just affect you in some way, whether it's their space on this earth or their athletic abilities or whatever. But even before CR's first injury, head injury, mm -hmm. he, um, I don't know. He, he's just one of those people that you meet that you kind of just fall in love with right away. Like his personality was just that, that way. And I always just enjoyed our time together, especially when it was kind of just myself and CR and Tanner and we were training. Um, I always worked with CR a lot behind the scenes. People don't know this with his equipment, et cetera, et cetera. And that those that time, those hours spent, the three of us together, is something I'll never forget. And 
honestly, CR is one of the few people that come up in my life every day. There's not really a day that goes by that I don't think about him. And I, I can't quite put my finger on it other than that's just was his force on this planet, I guess you, you would say. And so much like Tanner, those guys just constantly wanting to ski and train and get better at their craft and try and spread the love of, of skiing. And um, yeah, that's just infectious to, to yeah. me. I, I would totally and, agree. Like he was same thing was just this powerful figure and just an incredible skier. Like I think was like, the one un- really to, unbelievable, unbelievable. Uh, un- unbelievable skier. And another story, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but when he was coming back from, the first head injury and he was having a lot of a lot of balance issues and things and and I think for some reason him and Tanner were apart for a little while and I believe the way he went down is he called Tanner and said do you think I should come and work with Dano and Tanner said yeah you know absolutely he focuses so much on balance in the ski boot and where you're riding on the ski and all those things and and so CR came out and Tanner and I had already been training and working on equipment for the upcoming season. And, and it was interesting because there was never really panic in, in his emotions or in the process that we started to go through as we made changes with his boots, as we made changes with the ski shapes. Um, I think he was at that time working with Sturbins at Forefront and they were developing or he had a pro model already. And, so I helped him think differently a little bit about the shape of the ski and maybe where the turn radius needed to be to help him ski with the way that he had to ski now. And, you know, the big part at that point leading up, I don't even know if we even thought about going to the Red Bull contest, right? In France, I think it was called line chasers. Line, or, line catcher. Yep. Line catcher. Like mm-hmm. I think at the very end of the day, that was something he was talking about doing, but, you know, my main thing was just to try and get him to where he felt balanced again, not only in his boots, but on his skis and then finding that turn shape that kind of fit the way he kind of had to ski post the traumatic head injury. And, um, he just never, he never rushed it. You know, he, he had faith in, 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 I guess me and our relationship and the process to get there. And that's, that was very inspiring to me as an athlete and that helped bring us a lot closer and um, unbelievable athlete and man, unbelievable hugger. That guy gave the best hug (laughs) in the entire universe. And I miss that. Yeah. Oh man. We all miss CR. Uh, CR, we miss you. And um, thank you, Dana, for sharing all those stories um, about him because he really did change the sport and you also did too, Dana. That's kind of why I wanted to bring you on the show was like, you really were, I mean, in a way, a lot, the catapult for a lot of us to do what we did. And it just, it really reminds us like, remember who you surround yourself with, remind you, remind yourself who you work with, you know, it's really important. And it's, um, thank you so much for everything you've done, Dano, in, in every way from being inspiring, you know, coaching off hill on hill, ski stuff, everything. It's just, it's been incredible. So thank you so much, Dana, for joining me on What's Your Line with Greta. 
It was so fun to talk to you about the history of free skiing, the future of free skiing, Dahoo ski boots, and of course, tips on how to gain a competitive advantage in the ski industry. Because if you're not first, you're last. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Thank you, Greta, um, for the opportunity and uh, those kinds of words. I, you know, I don't know. I was just in the middle of it in the moment, and I have so much love and respect and admiration for what you guys do that I, I just always wanted to be there to help you to live out your dream. And uh, you're a, you're a parent now. I think anything we can do to help young people live out their dreams, be good people, um, be stewards of our earth. Um, I, I, that's why you wake up in the morning. So I, I appreciate those kind words. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Dano. 